I'm Lori Hellman, an Indiana warrior mom who has navigated the autism world for 16 years and counting. My hope is to unite autism families by sharing experiences and taking a deep dive into this puzzling disorder. So thanks for joining me on Living the Sky Life, our autism journey. I've talked a lot in the past about Skylar's stomach issues, GI discomfort, constipation, banging of the walls, all of those things. So I am thrilled to be able to have a podcast episode with Skylar's pediatric gastroenterologist, Dr. Arthur Krigsman. We're going to discuss some of the signs and symptoms um, that your child may be experiencing that could also lead to a diagnosis um, of ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, several other things. Um, and basically, the gist is that the any constipation, diarrhea, any of those things that are going on with your child on the spectrum should not be ignored. You definitely should go with your gut, so to speak, and um, reach out to any medical professional that will listen to you because that is not normal and it's not something that your child should have to live with and suffer with um, as well as you as parents suffering along with your child. So um, again, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Krigsman to the podcast and hope you enjoy our conversation. So today's episode is a little bit more of a clinical focus. Um, my guest is a pediatric gastroenterologist specializing in the evaluation and treatment of children with ASD and related disorders. His practice focuses on the clinical needs of children with autism and comorbid concurrent gastrointestinal symptoms. So a huge welcome to Dr. Arthur Krigsman on the podcast today. Thank you, Lori. Yeah, welcome. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you. In full disclosure, Dr. Krigsman has been Skylar's GI um, practitioner for just about a year now. Actually, we're coming up on a year. So um, I, I just really wanted to chat with you today because you've helped our family so much in such a short time and given us answers to questions we've had for years about Skylar's symptoms and behaviors. Um, so it's I guess I kind of want to, yeah, it, it's been phenomenal. I sing your praises every chance I get. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I guess I want to start with um, your practice and when you decided to devote your practice to um, children on the spectrum and, and similar disorders and treating their GI needs. So that's, uh, that's an interesting question. That was an evolution. Um, <laughs> wasn't a decision I made over, you know, a week or even a month. Um, I initially, um, I was, I, I was, I, I got board certification in both general pediatrics and uh, pediatric gastroenterology many years ago. And I practiced both. And I uh, was a partner in a general pediatric practice. At the same time, I was the department head of pediatric gastroenterology at a Manhattan hospital, major Manhattan hospital. And I did both. I did the regular general pediatrics as well as doing um, pediatric gastroenterology. My, my chairman who trained me during my pediatric GI specialty always emphasized the point that in order to be a good specialist, one needs to be a good generalist. You can't just focus on the specialty because without having the generalist's knowledge, uh, 
and their background and experience, you're going to miss or make a lot of mistakes in your uh, activities as a specialist. So I, that's what I did. I took his advice. I did both. And then during the, uh, this goes back to 2000, like maybe even 1999, I had begun seeing uh, a number of children with autism. The epidemic had already begun. You know, the numbers began skyrocketing in the late 1980s. And a lot of children with autism were coming in the office. And when I was in my training in, in, the, uh, in the mid 80s, I had only seen one child with autism. I trained in a major, in a major urban hospital in, in SUNY Brooklyn. I mean, so we had a huge number of, of patients, and I had only, only seen one case in all those years. And uh, here I am on the North Shore of Long Island seeing so many kids coming in with, with autism. My partner, the senior partner of my general pediatric practice was an allergist, and he took an interest. And he was an older man who had, you know, he was ready in his 70s, and he had seen over the years this increase in developmental disorders and behavioral abnormalities and psychiatric illnesses in children. He was old enough to appreciate that change and had seen enough. And he initially, he encouraged me that I, I should have a look at some of the autistic kids because all of them had diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't take him seriously. Um, but he kept encouraging me. And uh, I always, uh, initially, my feeling was that these children have a psychiatric illness and lots of people with psychiatric illnesses are going to have a GI disorder. It's, you know, when you're nervous the day before the exam, you have diarrhea before the big exam in college. And that's how I thought of it. <laughs> uh, but he really encouraged me to, you know, that I should look, I'd be more open-minded and look into it more. And he, and he sent me some publications from uh, professor John Walker Smith, who, uh, at the time, he was perhaps the world's most renowned leading pediatric gastroenterologist. He had written the textbooks, literally, book chapters, textbooks, invited reviews, um, journal articles. He had won so many awards from our various societies. And he had written a couple of papers describing the GI pathology in children with autism who have chronic GI symptoms. And uh, because of those papers, I, um, I said, okay, I, I'll approach these children with GI symptoms the same way I would approach any other child who didn't have a developmental disorder for their GI symptoms. And um, the initial workup, the non-invasive workup is negative. They proceeded to get biopsies as indicated. The biopsies showed pathologic inflammation, exactly as Professor John Walker-Smith had described in his published papers. And that um, that's how it started. That was back in 2001. And then it was, uh, <laughs> what was most amazing to me is that once I began, and then I was, I was, I, I, I jumped the mental hurdle um, that a lot of doctors have is that when you see this kind of child with autism doing their behaviors in your office, there is a desire to, you know, to the desire to get them out of the office. They're, you know, they, they get in the way of the office flow. They're difficult to handle, difficult to manage. Um, and you want to try and get them out as soon as you can. Uh, that was my initial response also. But once I saw that they had pathology, then I was much more interested in, in, in having, seeing more patients. Um, and 
almost overnight by itself, patients began showing up from all parts of the country. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen in, in medicine. You don't all of a sudden have people flying in from uh, other states to see you with their five or six-year-old son who has such behavior disorders that the trip itself is so hard for them. And uh, that also drove home the um, the amount of suffering that these families were having because of the gastrointestinal issues. So that's how I got started with it. And um, the more patients that came to me, the more I, I became involved with them. And at some point, uh, the sheer numbers of those patients were so many that I decided to devote my practice entirely to this group of children. It's so phenomenal and I'm glad you did. <laughs> I know it's a lot of work, especially since you don't have partners. Um, you're a one man shop as far as the, um, the physician part of it goes. I know you have an amazing staff who is phenomenal with follow through and they're very quick and we've appreciated all of that, but it's a lot. And um, you know, we are one of those families that traveled across the country to see you um, from the symptoms that we you know, presented. And it's funny, on our first call, I remember um, talking to you and I really wasn't sure. It was word of mouth that I heard about you from another friend of mine that lives here in town. Um, and her son had, had been a patient of yours or started um, as a patient of yours. And when we talked and I told you the symptoms that Skylar had, the chronic constipation, the banging on walls, hitting of his leg, just irritability all around bathroom bathroom habits and all of that. And you were smiling on the, the Skype video because, <laughs> and at first I was like, why is he smiling? But you were just nodding your head and because you could relate. So do a lot of the kids that you see in your practice have similar symptoms and present with you know, similar behaviors as Skylar? Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the most common presentation that I hear, I've heard over the years, and we're coming up on almost 20 years now, um, working with these kids, the most common symptom is abdominal pain and constipation. Those are far away, the two most common. And even using those terms, it, it's a little tricky because you, if you're a mother of one of these children, you can certainly understand this firsthand. Abdominal pain, in the non-autism world, the patient comes and says, my stomach hurts, or it hurts me there, it hurts me there, it hurts when I lay down. Well, you don't have that with these children. It's unusual. It's unusual that any patient of mine will verbally tell you that their stomach hurts and be able to point to their stomach at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's, I would say, less than 5% can do that. So abdominal pain has to be interpreted by other means. And uh, what we've done over the years is that we've cataloged what those behaviors are. So the feeling of pain becomes manifested as a behavior. And those behaviors tend to be aggression, biting, kicking, scratching, banging the walls, making holes in the sheetrock, uh, violence, destroying things in the house, um, self-injury, meaning hurting oneself, biting their arms, biting their lips, legs, hitting their head or their abdomen or any other part of their body. Um, posturing, assuming positions where they're placing pressure on their abdomen. Those are some of the ways that we've learned these kids are 
trying to communicate their abdominal pain. So either they're trying to communicate it to someone around them, so someone around them can be aware of it and do something for them, or they engage in these behaviors because it just makes them feel better, like the posturing, for example. That we don't know. That we don't know. Um, those are the most common symptoms that we see. And then beyond that, the other common symptoms uh, are, oh, and backing up for one second, and the constipation part of it, uh, the constipation that these kids have is not the one that's defined as overly hard stools. That's, that's an unusual type of constipation in the ASD kids. The most common type is that the frequency by which they pass stool is markedly decreased every three to four to five days, or maybe even like that kids go every seven to 10 days. And what's so interesting about that is that when the stool finally comes out after a week, it comes out uh, not overly hard comes out looking either normal or if anything they're looser than normal which is um, physiologically that's not what you normally expect to see because the longer stool stays in the colon the more water gets drawn out by the colon and the harder the stool gets so that was a very important symptom also is the, the decreased stool frequency and then the ultimately passing stool that's not overly hard the other, the other way to define constipation it's a symptom which is very imperative and important for parents to to realize, and I'm going into this symptom part in depth, and I always do when, I'm, when I speak about this, because the symptoms are, are the front line. That's how the parents or the caretaker knows that there is a problem that needs to be pursued, unless you understand and see this for what it is, and you dismiss it, and the problem just continue often forever. For constipation, the, uh, the, the children have difficulty in actually getting the stool out from inside them. So the stool is not overly hard, but they'll find ways to push strain. They'll, they'll contort their bodies. Uh, some of them will manually disimpact themselves with their fingers. Some kids will stand and squat on the toilet seat and, and uh, push that way. Um, these are all uh, variations of what we call the Valsalva maneuver, which is a way that you can generate maximal intra-abdominal pressure. Now, women who've given birth to babies are, would be familiar with that. And when you want to get this baby out of the uterus, what you do um, instinctively and reflexively is you flex your hips maximally and bear down. Mm -hmm. The flexing of the hips, so in this country, we do it with women on their back and the hips are flexed that way, but uh, you go to the African jungles and uh, the native tribes and they'll squat over a pit. And there's every type of hip, hip flexure in between those two examples. Um, and that was combined with bearing down. And that's what these kids are doing when they're squatting on a toilet seat and other signs of, 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 um, of straining. So those are, those are the big symptoms. Um, other symptoms that we see are failure to thrive. So these children, the kids who are affected with ASD and the GI inflammatory disease, and we'll get more into what specific diagnosis from the GI standpoint I'm most interested in. You have kids who, who have that combination, the ASD and the GI diagnosis. Those are kids who in general have growth failure. Um, meaning that the rate at which they gain weight decreases from year to year. So the absolute number, the absolute weight may increase year to year, 
but the rate at which they're gaining weight is slowing down. Sometimes it even stops altogether. At the extreme is weight loss. And the interesting thing about these kids is that their linear growth tends not to be affected. So they're growing taller. Just lankier. <laughs> and they look lankier, or they look more skeletal, actually. And sometimes, you know, that's what catches the eye of a parent or of a physician, that uh, that, that problem may exist. Those are the common, those are the most common symptoms. And um, also, would you say uh, stomach distension too? I mean, I know Skylar had the biggest belly, no matter what, if he ate or didn't eat, he had a very distended belly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the distended belly is, uh, is very common. And I, I, I certainly should have mentioned that in my group of wild <laughs> okay. symptoms. Yeah. Um, the abdominal distension is primarily due to a colon that's loaded with stool. Because when I perform a routine uh, screening abdominal x-ray on all new patients, and virtually all of them have a what's called fecal loading, or soft stool constipation. The colon is loaded up with stool, but the stool is not overly hard, and the diameter or the caliber of the colon is not increased. It's just sitting there, not moving. Yeah, I mean, I can only imagine having a colon that's that impacted and how much pain that causes to then, you know, exhibit those behaviors that you talked about and that we've witnessed firsthand here with Skylar. So um, when a when a patient presents. Um, like that to you through the x-rays and through your conversation with them, um, with the parents, do you always go with a colonoscopy? Um, and in our case, we did an endoscopy too, because Skylar had choking issues. Um, he was having issues at the top and at the bottom. Right, <laughs> Poor kid. Right, sure. um, what is usually the course of action? Do most kids get scoped? So the course of action is really the approach is the same approach that you would apply to any other child who does not have autism. That's the approach. In other words, the first thing is to identify the symptoms. And that's, that's often the biggest hurdle, um, as we discussed just a few minutes ago. But once you identify the symptoms, so now you have a symptom list, say of abdominal pain, failure to thrive, abdominal distension, food sensitivities. Okay, a lot of the kids can't have gluten or casein that causes behavioral problems or GI problems and other kids can't have preservatives or colorings and you know your your audience knows that the list could be endless what they're sensitive to so those are your main symptoms and you approach again these children like any other child okay what are the uh, what are the GI diagnoses that I'm looking for uh, that can explain these symptoms and there are a variety of non-invasive tests that we do first you do screening blood tests, you look for hypothyroidism, you look for celiac disease for those patients who are not gluten-free. Um, you look for other food sensitivities or food allergies um, in those patients who, uh, who the story <coughs> food sensitivity clearly goes beyond just gluten and beyond just casein. <coughs> you look for um, uh, any evidence of electrolyte disturbances on routine blood tests. Um, you want to know what the liver enzymes are like. You want to get a basic idea of the hepatic metabolism. You want to get an idea of their white count to see if they're anemic. Are they, is there blood in the stool? 
Um, is there is there an infectious process going on within the GI tract that you can pick up? And maybe it's Giardia that's causing the pain and failure to thrive and diarrhea. Um, it could be uh, H. pylori infection. The, the, the possibilities are almost endless. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, fortunately, for most of those possibilities, there's a non-invasive diagnostic test that we do. And when the patient tells me during our initial encounter what their symptoms are, Again, the symptoms are usually narrowed down to, you know, one of eight or nine symptoms in this group of kids. And I've developed a, a, an all-inclusive screening test that will screen for these symptoms uh, that have to be really extracted from the parents because the kids don't manifest them in ways that we normally expect symptoms to be manifested. And... Um, So it includes blood tests, stool tests for the things we mentioned before, an abdominal x-ray. We have some very interesting findings. We published uh, some of them about what you see on the x-ray of many of these patients on plain abdominal x-ray film. And uh, I do a basic screening urine test, any evidence of urinary infection. Many of the kids have um, calcium oxalate urinary crystals, and that causes painful urination that many of the parents describe their kids yanking or holding on tightly to their genitals uh, in a not pleasurable way. The kids are clearly bothered by it. Um, we, so we investigate that. If all those come back negative, and the vast majority of, of the kids do, all these tests come back negative. And that means that using non-invasive measures, um, I have not been able to identify a pathology that explains the symptoms. That is what justifies doing uh, doing a biopsy, doing an invasive colonoscopy and endoscopy, because until you've ruled out something that you can treat uh, not, and, and diagnose non-invasively, there is no justification for any kind of invasive testing. And that's the case, uh, autistic or not. Um, it seems simple. It seems almost too simple. You just approach them in the same way you would any other patient. Um, but somehow, when this child with autism walks in the office and they do their stimming and they, they, they do, they do their stick in front Mm -hmm. of the medical medical staff. Um, It's almost amazing, but straightforward algorithmic thinking just goes out the window and these kids don't get the workup that they need. But uh, as again, the the workup is done and it's the non-invasive workup is negative and you move forward and get a biopsy. Uh, Then what you find, um, what I found to be far and away the most common diagnosis is, uh, is an inflammatory bowel disease. And to go back to a question you asked before, you know, what kind of uh, diagnostic test do you do? Um, when I first began working with these kids, I tried to be very selective. Do I want to do just an endoscopy or just um, a colonoscopy? And I would try and be selective. And then over the course of time, it became clear that based upon the symptoms and how and the, the unusual manifestation of symptoms and also this high pain threshold that so many parents talk about in their kids. Uh, I've, I learned to do both an upper and lower endoscopy, both the colon and the upper endoscopy on, on, on all patients because you never know what you're going to find because they don't manifest the symptoms. I can't normally when in gastroenterology, you, you choose to do, um, a procedure, a diagnostic procedure based upon the patient's presenting symptom. 
here the presenting symptom is so atypical and so vague and it's based on often on behaviors that you really it doesn't give you an idea in advance where you are most likely to find the GI pathology and it forces you to look up or up and down. And when I began doing that, I began finding all kinds of surprises, uh, um, inflammatory surprises. So there are many types of autoimmune types of inflammation that we're seeing. There's an, there's an eosinophilic uh, process that goes on typically in the esophagus, but also elsewhere in the bowel. There's um, an IBD, a Crohn's-like process that goes on throughout the GI tract. There are regular ulcerations. Uh, there are infections. Um, there is garden variety, terrible reflux that we never imagined based on the patient's symptom presentation, but we find it surprised on, on endoscopy. So I'll, I'll always do both. And then once, you, once the capsule endoscope uh, came into the fore, it was FDA approved uh, in 2002 for children. Um, by 2007 or so, I began using it. And when I began, again, initially, I was very selective who I chose to use it in. And like I had discovered with routine endoscopy, I found that the um, the capsule endoscopy uh, often gave was the, was the only diagnostic device that gave us a uh, an accurate diagnosis. Um, and that's the pill camera, correct? The pill camera, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I incorporated that into my routine endoscopy, so that now when I have a child with autism and this constellation of GI symptoms then I will routinely do uh, an upper endoscopy where I can get biopsies, a colonoscopy where we can get biopsies, and then the capsule endoscopy, the pill cam, which doesn't get a biopsy, but it does give us uh, a, a, a low power magnification uh, of the appearance of the entirety of the small bowel. And the majority of our intestine is the small bowel. So that clearly emerged, the pill cam clearly emerged as being the most important diagnostic study of all. Well, and you know, and I know being Skylar's physician, there's minimal things you can share, but being his mom, I can pretty much share whatever I want. Sure. Yeah. And um, you know, what was so remarkable to me, um, I was first anxious that he would not be able to swallow the pill cam. It's not like it's enormous, but it's also not small. Um, so I was so worried that he wouldn't be able to do that, but, um, miraculously Josh got him to do that pretty easily. So <laughs> bless him for that. But the pictures that we saw from that alone were just astonishing. The number of ulcers that the poor kid had from his throat all the way down to the bottom of his intestines and colon and all throughout, um, I just, I had no idea that we would see something like that. And I think even you mentioned when we were there um, for our scopes that it was worse than you had anticipated and you anticipated it was pretty bad just based on his behaviors and his symptoms. Um, right. It was shocking to me. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's still, you know, it's still shocking to me after almost 20 years now of doing this and thousands of kids, it's always an adventure. Every endoscopy is an adventure because you just never know what you're going to find. Um, you know, usually when you, do, when you do an endoscopy, you do it because you have a specific diagnosis in mind you're looking for. You'll have a general idea about what you're going to see. But because, again, and you have that idea in part because of the symptoms that the patient tells you they have, because we don't have that key piece. So we only have 
portions or atypical presentations of symptoms, you really never know what you're going to find then. And every case, like, you know, when once the scope goes on the patient, everyone just stares at the screen, the nurses, the anesthesiologists, because they know, <laughs> they know that either, either it's going to be nothing that's uh, uh, that significant or something really important or something in between. But, um, and that's, of course, what keeps it interesting from the scientific standpoint is is that it's uh, it's not it's not really at all repetitive. The, the lesions are different, the areas, the locations, and of course the presentation. Now, what interests me at this point in my career, what's interests me is is how we can predict um, which patients are going to do better when we treat them for their intestinal inflammation of various sorts. Which ones are most likely to do better and become once a year follow-up type patients? Which ones are gonna go down a much bumpier road and have difficulty in finding the right medication with the right dose and uh, minimal side effects? Um, and most importantly, which patients don't just improve as far as their gastrointestinal symptoms, but also improve as far as their cognition and behavior. That's the most fascinating part of all. Does it make sense that if you're in pain, you'll, you'll, you'll have behavioral changes as manifest in a manifestation of pain. You'll take medication and get rid of the pain and the behavior stop that. I think anyone can appreciate, you know, that chain of events, but what's striking and we've seen it numerous times, numerous, numerous times, is that you treat bowel inflammation and you get improvement, not just in GI symptoms and in their behaviors, but also in their ability to think and to process and to communicate verbally or non-verbally things you would not expect to happen from simply making someone feel good. Um, and that's what we're working on now. We have a study under underway, uh, looking at that and trying to correlate that. Well, and it makes sense. I mean, if, if you and I don't feel well, um, you know, and we have to go to work or we have to do whatever, we're distracted because we're focused on the pain of our belly or, or whatever it is. And I mean, I've seen it firsthand with Skylar at his ABA program. There are definitely uh, were days, especially before we came to see you and start treatment, but he just, he had horrible behaviors all day and it would be five days in a row because he was constipated for five days in a row. He didn't want to do anything. He was hitting, you know, just really, really naughty. And then as, as we would call it naughty, but it was just, they, they couldn't get anything productive out of him. It was kind of a waste of a day for everybody. Um, right. you know, but right. since treatment and since the distension is gone and, you know, he has daily bowel movements, which we had never thought we would be rejoicing over, you know, <laughs> discussing each day, like how many BMs did he have? And his teachers let us know and, and all of that. It's very funny, but, um, we were, we are just overjoyed that he's actually having a BM on a daily basis. It yeah. has removed somewhat of the behaviors. I mean, we still have some work to do, but any progress is better than none. So we'll take it. <laughs> hands exactly. down. And that's it, you know, and that's, that's the approach that parents need to have. Um, all parents, all parents that call me are hoping that there could be a huge impact on the child's autism, not just their GI symptoms. And I'm always very careful to, to be upfront and tell them that I am, first and foremost, uh, a pediatric gastroenterologist. 
my interest lies primarily in in diagnosing and treating diseases of the GI tract. If there will come a time where we'll be able to show scientifically, and we're working on that study now, as I mentioned, that by treating the GI tract, I can make a difference in their cognition as well as their behavior. That would be wonderful because that would be one, then once, we, once we've shown that, if, if we are successful in showing that, uh, and I do think we will be because we just heard the story so many times, but when that happens, then we will have one more way to treat autism. We'll be able to say that treating the bowel disease, inflammatory bowel disease, is one more way that one can treat autism. Not cure it, but to make things better, to make cognition better, to make behavior better. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, that's that's the that's the cycle. That's the cycle of cognition, behavior, and GI disease. And that's true probably uh, not only for GI disease, um, as I'm sure you've come to learn. Autism is simply a word that is given to describe a constellation of behaviors and cognitive deficits mm-hmm. um, that are unique in their, in, their, in their grouping together. And that allows <clears throat> a diagnostic term autism can be given, but as far but as you know, because you've gone down this road, you've gone down it together. Autism, uh, its underpinnings are medical and uh, largely immunologic. They're immunologic, they're mitochondrial, they're gastrointestinal, they're neurologic, seizures. Um, there are other organ systems that are involved also quite frequently. And by, uh, and, and, the, and, they, and they all have this dysfunction together. It's a unified dysfunction of multiple organ systems that seems to result in the behaviors and cognitive deficits we call autism. So the upstream effect isn't that something is wrong with their brain, makes them behave strange, and a downstream effect is gastrointestinal, mitochondrial, immunologic, metabolic, neurologic. That's not the way most of us who work with these kids see it. It's the other way around. It's the upstream event is the immunologic event. And downstream from there are all the consequences of having this immunologic event occurring at such an early stage in life. And uh, those studies haven't been done. We really don't know. Uh, We don't know, first of all, if that, in fact, if that theory of cause and effect is true. But those of us who work with it, um, especially the immunology part, uh, are more and more convinced that that's that's the... uh, that's the that's the that's the stepwise progression is that it begins in infancy as an immunologic event and then it progresses if it's untreated it progresses further and involves other organs and the best way of treating autism as the whole unit is to identify as many organ systems that are dysfunctional or non-functional or poorly functional or pathologically functional identify as many as you can and treat that piece just treating the pieces of the puzzle and that's when we get our best outcomes well did you say or is there ongoing medical research that you know of or discussions about development um and when you know some of these situations may go awry um with the different 
symptom or the different um, aspects of the body um, during, you know, fetal development or do we, do we know if, if they're, I guess, I guess the question I've always had is, do we know yet if someone is born with autism or if their systems have issues? And like you said, there's a developmental delay, which could be caused before the systems start showing issues or it's something that just gradually develops over time and then they are labeled autistic because they're developmentally delayed. I just, I don't understand right. the chicken or the egg kind of situation here. Well, this, there, there is, it's a bit, it's a great question. It's a great question academically. And uh, there are people who have um, published papers that show a variety of either biochemical or imaging um, abnormalities in utero that statistically predict the presence of or the development of autism at some point down the road. Um, those are preliminary, preliminary papers and I'm, I'm not convinced that that's going to actually pan out. Um, I'm of the belief that that these children are born normal for the most part. They're, they're, I'm sure there are always, there's always the you know, the people at the, uh, at either ends, um, on the other extreme of the bell-shaped curve. But for the most part, the vast majority uh, of children, I believe, with autism are born normal. And through an interaction of an environmental influence together with a genetic predisposition, uh, that results in what we call autism in all of its different uh, manifestations and organ system involvements. Now, so there is work going on in that area. Um, you know, the work <clears throat> for the longest time, uh, there was a huge investment in looking for the genes that cause autism. And uh, they were never found. Huh. They were never found because they're not there. Uh, there might be genes that can statistically predispose one uh, to having autism. But once you get into that, that's more of a statistical game. Um, and if you look from country to country, the genes that statistically predispose to autism or other diseases in America are different than the genes that predispose one in Japan, for example. So it's, um, it gets very complicated, but there is no autism gene. Like, for example, when we talk about diseases like sickle cell disease, uh, in blacks or cystic fibrosis in Caucasians or, or Tay-Sachs um, in Jews and, and a whole host of other diseases. Those are examples of the gene commits you to having the disease. That's a true genetic disease. Regardless of what environment you're in, what you're going to eat, if you have this gene, right, and, and it's, if, if it's either recessive or it's dominant, um, it's a quarter or it's a half of the of the of, of your progeny will be affected. We know that as a statistical certainty, because that combination of genes will produce the disease. Period. Um, the vast majority of genetic diseases that you hear of are not pure genetic diseases. They're they're genetic predispositions. You can have the gene and not have the disease. Uh, in fact, you can have the gene, most people can have the gene, not have the disease. But what's been shown is that mathematically and statistically, 
if you have this gene, you're 1.4 times more likely than someone who doesn't have it to have any given disease. And that kind of information is very difficult to know what to do with that kind of information because uh, it doesn't tell you you have a disease. It just gives you an element of, uh, of risk. So, you know, and, and people, that's why they were for a very long time, the FDA wasn't allowing that kind of gene testing to be put on the market uh, for commercial use. And now there are, I don't want to name companies, but there are companies you're probably aware, uh, many of them that offer these kinds of testing and the, the results are, are they sometimes are helpful, but more often they cause lots of anxiety. And a lot of false positives and things like that when you're uh, pregnant, well, not, pregnant well, women too. Well, yeah, it isn't a false positive. It's just that a positive result doesn't mean you're going to have the disease by any means. Mm -hmm. It just means you're at greater risk. Sometimes that greater risk is actually a very small increase. So uh, there was a time where people were looking for uh, the thinking was, okay, there's a, there, is, there is a gene that we're going to find if we look at the genome of children with ASD. And once we know what that gene is, we'll be able to move forward with gene therapy. Well, that was never found. And despite, you know, a de more than a decade of searching for it. And that's been largely abandoned, uh, and, um, which I'm happy about. And in its place are, are studies that look for specific um, specific genes that are that all of us have that normally are silent, but in children who have autism are being turned on for reasons that we don't know. And that's that that's the whole biomarker industry, uh, and that's probably a different discussion. But we have we published on that as well, looking at different gene products that are in, found in the blood and in the bowel trying to trace them back to the parent gene and trying to see if we can come up with a, a story that somehow makes sense. Uh, but more on that a different yeah, time. Yeah, It's an interesting hypothesis, especially when you have um, siblings, you know, like in our case, I mean, we, I didn't do a single thing different with either pregnancy. One's a boy, one's a girl. And, you know, my daughter is 100% uh, normal, as you say. I don't know if she's normal, but <laughs> normal in clinical terms. Um, Who amongst then, us? Who amongst <laughs> us is really normal? <laughs> I know, right? Who defines what normal really is? Um, and then, you know, her brother obviously uh, was born first and is on the spectrum pretty severely, and she's not. So I think, you know, the question, I would love to see more research over the years. Obviously, everybody probably would um, on that because I, you know, I worry that she might be fearful to have children if the gene is in all of us, if they determine that someday, that, it, you know, it's some people it's recessive and some people it, it triggers, like you said, it kind of turns on the autism um, factors. Um, it'd be interesting to see if they could predict that for future generations. Right. And that's, uh, yes, I, and that's, that's where the, where the research work is going. And I'm very happy that that's the way it's going. Um, but when all said and done, my prediction, I may be wrong, but my prediction is going to be that the environmental trigger mm -hmm. is going to emerge as being the big problem, um, not specific genes that increase risk. 
uh, right. because there are so many, even, even in all the years of looking for genes, can they call candidate genes. Now there are, there are, are so many genes that have been found that increase the risk of autism. So it's really a crapshoot. I mean, what does any of that mean? No one knows. No one knows. And because the increase in risk is small for each one of those. It isn't like when you have, a, there hasn't been a gene found that makes you 10 times more likely to have autism. It's <laughs> nothing like that. Right. More like 1.3 times or 1.7 more times. Um, so we're not talking the, 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 the gene, the genes as being the problem are that that's, that's not what the research has panned out. It's whatever environmental trigger there is that's acting on that gene or on those set of genes. Um, that's where, uh, that's where we're going to find our best answer. Um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. It evolves over time. Yep. People can say they heard it here first. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> well, many, I mean, no, it's, it's, this is well published. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the, the experts, you know, in various fields, mm -hmm. uh, including genetics, you know, after all their years of looking at that, they're, they're saying the same thing. Um, so it's, uh, so the work will go on. And uh, the important thing from my end, from my end, so all these children, I mean, prevention obviously will be the best, the best solution of all. But then we have all these kids, hundreds of thousands uh, that are already affected and how to best treat them. Uh, and that's, of course, what, I'm, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And the GI disease is a, it's a large part of that. Yes. Well, with regard to treatment, I know that every patient is different. Um, is there a, a general algorithm that you use, though? Um, like if you find ulcerations in, um, in, in their scopes or things like that, would you always kind of treat the ulcerations with steroids and stuff first and then move through, you know, um, antibiotics and um, anti-inflammatories, things like that? Or does it really differ? Every single child is different. Well, it depends, of course, what the diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. um, if it's the uh, if it's an inflammatory bowel disease diagnosis, um, which is the most common type that I see when I scope these kids, then there the the algorithm is really the same approach we use essentially for Crohn's disease. Uh, we'll do uh, typically an induction course with the corticosteroid, get the patient off the corticosteroid, then we have to see how they respond. Um, that's where every child starts becoming different. You can get the therapeutic benefits of the steroid with adverse effects. You can get only the adverse effects, but no benefit. Um, you can get the benefit and some mild adverse effects. Then when you get them off the steroid, you find you can't transition them to the non-steroid anti-inflammatory. They need a stronger immune suppressive type of drug as opposed to anti-inflammatories. Um, and, uh, and then that moves you into the next category of, uh, of drug strength. And there are many, there's immune modulators, there's biologic agents. It's really the same algorithm that we use for Crohn's disease. Uh, although this is not Crohn's, we've shown that, that this is not Crohn's disease. Um, it just present, it presents similar to Crohn's, um, but it's not actually Crohn's diagnosis. Well, many, well, many of the symptoms are similar to Crohn's and the anatomic distribution of where we're most likely to find the pathology in the bowel is similar to Crohn's as well. Um, the actual lesion 
the cellular and molecular makeup of the lesions are different than what we see in Crohn's disease, and that's what mm -hmm. we've published on extensively. But fortunately, the medications that are effective in Crohn's disease are also effective in this disease as well. And there are probably other medications that um, we don't even use in Crohn's disease that would be effective in this disease too, because again, because it's not Crohn's disease, because the cell types and molecular products are different, medications <clears throat> that are targeted for those specific cell types and molecular products would, um, which are present in ASD kids, but not in Crohn's patients, those, those are now candidate medications for use in our children that would not even be considered in Crohn's disease since Crohn's disease doesn't have those subtypes of inflammatory cells or, or uh, molecular products uh, being, uh, being produced. So um, that sounds kind of confusing, but the bottom line is that the, um, there is an algorithmic approach to treating uh, the usual IBD that I'll find in these kids, if a patient has eosinophilic esophagitis, then again, we treat that the way we treat it in, in patients uh, without autism. Uh, if, there are, if there are infections, we find, we find H. pylori gastritis, for example, the treatment is the same in these kids as they are in anyone else. So it depends on um, what we find. Um, but the, uh, the vast majority are found to have a chronic autoimmune inflammatory bowel disease, which is a treatment that's going to be needed for at least for a couple of years, just like any other autoimmune disease. So parents should think of it conceptually in terms of diagnoses such as psoriasis or multiple sclerosis or asthma or eczema. Those aren't diseases that we cure. There's no talk about curing those diseases. You treat it, you, you can get rid of symptoms. You can be symptom-free even for years if you stay on your medication. Uh, and even sometimes if you come off your medication, you can stay symptom-free for prolonged periods of time. But the disease is always lurking. It's always lurking because it's fundamentally a problem with the immune system. And you haven't changed the immune system by giving uh, a month or two or even a year of medication. You're simply suppressing the inflammation, uh, but the improvement of symptoms and the improvement of the damaged mucosal lining of the intestine and the improvement of behaviors and the improvement in cognition, that's uh, certainly a goal worthy of achieving, even if we're not curing the disease. So would you have suggestions for any parents listening, um, you know, who maybe have like I can put myself in the same bucket who maybe dismissed their child's constipation or diarrhea or in our case the choking the constant choking episodes as well um, is just a side effect of the autism and it's just something that we have to live with um, you know that really can't be treated and has nothing to be it cannot be fixed really in any way do you have suggestions for parents on what to do next I mean what steps to take Besides call your office, which I highly recommend. <laughs> I think that that suggestion <clears throat> um, would is best coming from someone like you, from mothers. And because my suggestion is that, that 
mothers in particular, there are a couple of dads that are really good at this too. But <laughs> the maternal instinct, I have, I have developed the incredible respect for maternal intuition and maternal instinct. If you think as a mother, or as one of these unusual wonderful fathers, if you think that what you're seeing is not right, this gagging, it shouldn't be there. The straining to have a bowel movement, it shouldn't be there. Uh, the vomiting, the regurgitation, food coming up into the mouth and then the children swallowing it again. Uh, if there are extremes of behavior, if there is aggression, if there's a problem, if you're getting uh, phone calls from teachers, uh, there's self-injury, these are not, none of those are part of the definition of autism. None of them are. They happen in children with autism a lot, but they are not part of being autistic. And if that's occurring, when those symptoms are occurring, then as the parent, you should demand and insist that your pediatrician, um, your family practitioner, whoever it is that's, that's the, at that point of care, uh, and listening to your complaint, you should insist that something be done about this uh, and it not be dismissed as an autistic behavior. And if the recommendation that you're gonna get for any of these is a psychotropic drug, okay, take Risperdal, which is FDA approved for use in ASD because it does improve many of the behaviors because it, it does uh, have strong sedative effects. Uh, but that, of course, is not should not be the first choice because if there's an or if there's a organic pathology, something wrong, then to give a sedative to alleviate the symptoms, of course, is the wrong way to go. Um, so the parent should be insisting of seeing these symptoms that it be worked up and it be evaluated. That's really uh, it has to come from the parents and. Um, if the person that they're speaking to, healthcare provider, is not receptive, then find another healthcare provider who is. If you can't find one locally near you, go online and talk to other parents. See where, where they're going, which pediatrician, which family practice person, which, which person is there out there. And, every, and they are all over these. There are wonderful, good doctors who've, who've opened up their eyes to these, to these things these symptoms and they will they will make the pro proper the appropriate referrals so that these uh, symptoms whatever they may be are addressed properly that's fantastic i appreciate you saying that and um I, you know i i we we hear it a lot from a lot of the guests on the on the podcast and i sit, tend to say it a lot myself you cannot go wrong going with your gut um, and speaking to a GI physician, I think <laughs> that's a, it's a perfect segue, but um, truly, I mean, I, I, I was in that same position and I, I just did not want to rest on just being told to just give him double doses of Miralax every single day and eventually he'll have a, a bowel movement. It just, it was a Band-Aid and it, we had a much bigger issue and I'm just so thankful that, you know, we found you and that you helped us uncover thank some you. of the bigger issues going on with Skylar. So, you know, thank you for that. <laughs> sure, thank you. It's uh, and more to come. You know, we're gonna we we we're always learning more. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we always learn how to do things better. Um, there are a lot of wonderful organizations and people that are out there that you may not even have heard of, but they're really interested in getting down to the bottom of the medical comorbidities of what we call autism. Right. And, uh, and those groups need support. They need your support. Um, and I'll give a shout out to one group in particular. It's uh, um, called Synchrony. Uh, they're based in Northern California. Um, they just had their, I think, third or fourth annual conference. And it's really uh, an amazing conference where researchers from all over the world are brought in. Researchers both in uh, autism or its related comorbidities or medical, uh, medical pathologies that are not involved in autism per se, but there is similarities to autism. So for example, um, pandas and pans, right? there you have an autoimmune process that affects your cognition and behavior. That's I just a, learned about that, uh, what that I, was. So, okay. Someone that I know had told me about their child's diagnosis of pandas, and I had never heard of that. Right, so it's a fascinating disease. It was first int- introduced into the uh, lexicon in the 80s by Sue Suedo. And uh, initially, she was ridiculed for su- uh, suggesting that you can get strep throat, and as a consequence of that, have um, experience um, unintentional, unintentional uh, tick or movements of the body or athetoid movements. And now it's been well established and it's been duplicated in other institutions. And then that opened up the whole area of investigation. Well, what else, what other infections could be inciting the immune system to respond inappropriately and affect the brain in ways that would impact cognition and behavior? And that, of course, is interesting to any parent of an autistic kid. So, um, just have saying, for example, so there was. A wonderful group who deals with uh, with that those types of diseases, not autism, who presented at that conference as well, and it was just very illuminating for all of us who are, are have our noses firmly in autism to hear what's going on in a in a very similar world, but not with autism. To see what those folks are doing, so right. so the work is there. So the parents should be hopeful. That's the bottom line, um, and. Um, just keep managing. <laughs> managing, just keep managing day to day. That's what yeah. we do. <laughs> Stay in the game. Stay in the game. That's, that's right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time out of your very, very busy schedule to very um, welcome. be on pleasure. the podcast. I, I really pleasure. appreciate it. And I will um, attach all of your contact information for your, um, your website and the Facebook page. So parents can reach out to your staff if they have questions or want to talk that's to wonderful. you further. It's wonderful. And, um, and if you want, Lori, as well, you can um, speak with my office. And if you wanted um, your podcasts uh, accessible from our Facebook page or from our websites, speak with them about that and we can arrange that as well. Well, perfect. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, until we talk again, which is very soon, I think we're supposed to see you in January in New York. So we'll be seeing you soon. Okay. Looking forward to it. You have a great day. Take care. Thank you All so right. much. You Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and will tune in for the next episode in two weeks. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Living the Sky Life within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play.
so you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select that five-star rating, provide feedback or suggestions about topics you'd like to hear about, and share living the sky life with others. Thanks again for listening.